Welcome to Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular podcast. We'll help you discover just how flexible modular construction has become and how it is helping make life better for real people facing real space challenges. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Built Modular, brought to you by Vanguard Modular, a box modular company. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast as we cover all things prefab, modular design and construction, and thought leadership on the larger built industry. Make sure that you're heading to our website, vanguardmodular.com. Again, vanguardmodular.com. For more information on the main topics we're gonna be breaking down today, as well as more Vanguard content, including episodes of the show, videos, articles, and more. You can also subscribe to Built Modular on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new ones. So for today's episode, we're gonna be getting granular with the modular process as we get back to the basics on this show. We've explored the history and we've explored the use cases for modular construction, but we've yet to break down just how modular buildings are, well, built, right? The basics, what goes into designing, developing, and delivering the individual modules that make up a complete building solution. And how do these decisions impact the quality or feasibility of a modular building? What build strategies work best for certain industries? And are there some designs or materials that just make for an all around better solution? Well, we're gonna be exploring all of that and more on the podcast today. And for insights, we're joined by Mark Myers. He's general manager of marketing services at Vanguard. Mark, great to have you on. How are you doing? Daniel, it's awesome to be here. Doing well, thanks. Yeah, really looking forward to getting into the nitty gritty here. Uh, we're basically going to get a high level picture here of the built process, and then we're gonna go step by step from beginning to end. What does it take to complete a modular building, hopefully demystifying the process a little bit for end users and for uh, others in the industry, maybe they can pick up some tips on how to maximize their build strategies as well. So Mark, thanks again for joining. Let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, you know, obviously prefab uh, and modular buildings have a very different production and construction process than an on-site build. So when we're comparing the build process of a modular building versus a traditional on-site build, what are some of the key ways that that process looks different? And then what are some of the key ways that those processes look the same? Let's just sort of, uh, you know, clear that first. Sure, no problem. So I would say that the primary difference of uh, modular versus conventional construction is that the buildings are actually constructed in sections in manufacturing facilities that may not be anywhere near the end construction site. Uh, once these modules are constructed, then they're delivered to the site, they're put together and they form a very similar building to a conventional structure. Temporary buildings, you probably see them, you know, at a school or something like that, but a uh, permanent modular structure, you probably wouldn't even recognize because it looks very similar to the conventional structure. Now, are there any core similarities that you think are worth pointing out? Okay, some of the key similarities between modular and uh, conventional construction is the materials, the building materials, uh, whether it be wood or steel or concrete, 
even the finishes, the windows, the doors, the plumbing fixtures, they're all very much similar, if not the same in both. Uh, also the end product, if you're building a permanent modular building, it's gonna look almost exactly the same as a conventional structure. Actually, if you drive down the road, you probably wouldn't even see the modular building and know it to be modular because it would look just like a conventional structure. On the temporary building side, obviously you're gonna see a bit of a difference because they're designed differently. They're typically, not always, but they're typically up off the ground because of their the design of their support structure and how they're transported. But as far as the, the building process, it is really done the same way. They have to meet the same uh, commercial codes so that the uh, structures can, you know, meet the wind loads and the snow loads and the floor load requirements for those occupying the building and the ge geographic locations where they're being delivered. I'm glad you brought up the sort of aesthetic similarities because I think maybe for end users who are hearing this and are considering uh, a modular build for some of their new buildings, I think there's maybe a common misconception that modular reads as modular, right? That there is, you know, maybe a, an aesthetic plus to that because of some of the um, interesting ways that, like you said, temporary buildings uh, kind of have to be built in a way that can make them easy to place and then remove. So therefore they read a little bit more to, you know, a passerby as a modular build. But the ones that are modular and meant to stay uh, actually don't really look modular. They are meant to appear and meant to be treated as and uh, have the same level of quality as an on-site build. And so I'm, I'm excited to get here just a, a little more specific on what it takes to match that level of quality. Uh, with that in mind, uh, how many different tried and true ways can modular buildings be built? Are there a set of go-to processes or methods for different use cases, or does it kind of look the same across the board with just a lot of specifics to make sure that the basics are correct? Basically, uh, how many kind of different ways do we see modular buildings get built? There's probably as many different ways to build modular buildings as there are manufacturers that build them. Fair. But I would say that uh, there are some distinct ways, probably two distinct ways based on the factories that I'm familiar with. And uh, the one way is more for the permanent type modular construction where those are not necessarily built on an assembly line near as much uh, as a temporary building would be. One of the reasons is they're not on, they're not typically on axles. So rolling it down an assembly line is not as feasible as building each module in place. Another reason is um, when you're building with steel and concrete, they most often put the buildings together before they actually deliver them to site. It's really interesting to watch how they do it, but they build the structures individually, the modules individually, and then they connect everything. So you basically have the entire building put together in their parking lot at the manufacturing facility. And then they go through and they make sure that all the wires are cut and connectors are at the right spot, the plumbing, the data, everything. And then they separate all the modules and the modules are then shipped individually to the site. 
Now on the temporary building side, it's a little bit different because they use the assembly line process. So really the first time the modules meet up for most temporary buildings is when they get to the site. Those are the main differences that I am familiar with. I'm sure there are many other ways, but those are the main ones that I'm familiar with. And then if you just had to generalize a little bit more for us before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, where is it wise to try to find some standardization amongst build styles versus where is it wise to adapt the process to each need or each sort of manufacturer's needs? Break down that dynamic. Well, I think when it comes to the actual the actual structural nature of a building, that's really where there's not compromise between the um, the manufacturers. They may, you know, sequence parts of their process differently. They may, um, you know, like I, I described, put the building together before they send it out. Whereas the assembly line process is the same. I mean, it provides the same result. Um, the connections and everything are all made at the same places and things. It's just that one manufacturer approaches it differently than the other. But as far as code compliance and safety and materials used and quality control, those are the same across all manufacturers. Another point of similarity between some of the various uh, manufacturing processes or uh, kinds of builds that we see are uh, you know, similarities in materials as well. I'm curious what some of the most common materials are that get used to get a modular building from idea to reality. Go ahead and break that down for us. What are some of those commonalities we see? Probably the most common materials, obviously, you know, steel is the basis for any building. Either, you know, a temporary modular building is going to have a steel frame just like uh, steel and concrete permanent structure would have steel support structure. I would say that wood is probably the next most common um, material in the temporary buildings in particular. You use a lot of wood, but even in a permanent structure, there can be uh, some hybrid components that include wood. And then if you get into more of the, the finished materials, VCG, vinyl covered gypsum, is a pretty typical wall finish. And what, there's several reasons for that. Um, one of the things we have to consider is the way that these buildings are transported. Let's talk about the temporary side. They're transported behind a truck and they could be traveling up to a thousand miles. And so if you have drywall in there that's mudded and taped and painted, there is the risk of that cracking in transportation. So the VCG provides um, section wall sections that are connected by batten strips where you won't see that you won't have that cracking. The other thing is the maintenance of VCG. It, when these are used in a temporary fashion, it's much easier to clean and maintain VCG than say drywall that's mudded, taped and painted. Now, on the flooring side of things, probably the most common is VCT, and it's basically just vinyl tile that sticks down on the floor. You can pull up tiles and replace them when they get broken or damaged or they lift. They are very durable, they're washable. So in high traffic areas and in um, like industrial uses, construction site uses, 
that that's a very typical flooring to use. And even in areas like laboratories also carpet tends to be one of those that that continues to be high use, especially in school situations. And probably the biggest reason is for sound attenuation. So you limit the uh, echoing throughout the room. Uh, so those are probably the main materials. I, I could touch on the roofing for most buildings, and you'll see it in commercial structures that are conventionally built as well. But rubber roofing is is pretty much the way to go on any buildings that don't have uh, sufficient slope to their roof structure. And we're going to get into uh, more specifics here on certain types of materials and their impact on the process. But just to paint that wider picture again before we get into the full breakdown, uh, how do these material considerations often impact the cost or the quality of a modular building? Is it very uh, integral uh, to the you know overall projected cost and quality? Are there ways around that where there are um, more standardized materials that you can more or less trust to deliver on the level of quality and cost folks are looking for? I guess just give us a little more info on that dynamic as well. Sure, absolutely. Now, Vanguard as a as a organization, we're we're very focused on making sure that any product we send out, any building that we send out, is going to serve the customer for as long as they desire to serve it, uh, serve them in in a in a really uh, high quality manner. So, you know, our base spec is not going to provide you with something that's going to fall apart in a year. That's just not the way that we operate. We make sure that our base spec supplies the quality that's required by any customer, but there's always upgrades that can, can be put into any building. And I would say that probably some of the biggest upgrades that we see in our buildings tend to be on the exterior and it's, it's aesthetics. It's not necessarily for longevity. It's much more on the aesthetic side of things. So there may be specialty requirements in the, in the facade. There might be specialty requirements in the windows, you know, the sizing of the windows or the doors, the flooring. I mean, sky's the limit on the types of flooring that you can select. For a more finished look, a lot of times people will select, say, painted uh, drywall, and that gives it just a little bit more of a finished look. Even though it's quite not quite as durable, it provides that professional look that you would typically see in a conventional structure. But for the most part, as far as quality goes, you're not really going to change the quality of the building by changing the materials. The quality is already predetermined in the materials, the base materials we use. All right, Mark, thanks for all the insights so far. I've been teasing it the whole episode, but it's time to actually get granular now. We're going to be breaking down the entire process front to back for uh, you know once a modular building is conceived, ideated, and there is a clear plan in mind. There are blueprints, right? What does it take to take those blueprints and turn them into a 
finished, usable, and quality building. So we're going to break that down. We're going to, uh, you know, intersect some thoughts on uh, interesting manufacturing workflows for each key step. And we'll intersect this with how it impacts cost and quality as well as on-site feasibility, et cetera, et cetera. So Mark, let's jump in. Uh, go ahead and kick us off. Where does this process usually begin once it's time to build a modular building? You know, every time I take a trip to one of our manufacturing facilities, I always get very excited. And and one of the reasons is because the the nuances and the differences between each of the factories. But as soon as I pull into these factories, it's it's always pretty awesome to see the the massive facility, all the new modules waiting to be you know shipped out. And then you start like driving back a little bit further in, you start walking into the facility and you see all the components that go into these buildings and it all take pla takes place in that one spot. And these units are shipped all over the place. So that's exciting. But really, you know, as you drive, you know, as you walk or drive to the back of the facility, you typically start at the frame and you're going to get raw steel brought in typically it's already formed into i-beams and and all the other structural components that they need but the factories do the welding of these um, these steel components together to build the frame that's needed for the size of the building and and truly the size of the building starts at the frame Typically, um, widths of, of our buildings range in 12 to 14 feet. Obviously, there are smaller buildings that can be eight wides or 10, 10 wides, but typically for our purposes, it's 12 to 14 feet. And then there's also the structural consideration for whether it's going to be an outrigger frame or a permanent uh, or a, a perimeter frame. And basically, it, it's a pretty simple concept where you have central beams that run down for an outrigger frame you have central beams and then you have outriggers that run to the outside and they support the the exterior of the um the structure and a perimeter frame is just like it sounds you have steel i-beams that run all the way around the perimeter and there are reasons for that a lot of times the perimeter frames are used more in northern geographic areas whereas outrigger frames are used in more southerly areas and also perimeter are typically used in more permanent situations whereas outrigger frames may be used in a more temporary situation but once they have the the frames welded together with the cross member supports, then the next step would be to connect that to the chassis, which is a fairly quick process in bolting those things together. And then they roll these out of the, um, the fabrication shop. Typically it's a separate shop next to the main manufacturing assembly line. And they roll them over to the assembly line building. And that's where they begin framing up the flooring in the, the specific temporary buildings that we're talking about, this floor, this uh, framing of flooring would be wood structure. And then they would put in uh, underneath a vapor barrier to ensure that the module is not compromised with moisture. Once the vapor barrier is installed along with the floor framing, then they'll, they'll put uh, decking on, on top of the floor framing. And it's either Advantech, which is a product that's used pretty much in general with most construction projects or they'll use three quarter inch plywood 
but it depends also on the type of uh, flooring that you're going to install because a lot of the flooring manufacturers require a certain uh, underlayment to ensure that the, that there's proper cohesion. Once the flooring's installed, that's pretty much the completion of the, the basic uh, support structure for each module. And so it's very important that the building be inspected at this point in time to ensure that all the structural components are secure, that they're put into place properly, and then it can move on to the next phase of the manufacturing process, which would be the walls. And uh, before we get to the walls, actually, I want to stay on flooring for a second because this feels like a good place to just sort of assess uh, the cost impact and quality impact of those uh, main sort of skeletal steps, right? Uh, so uh, especially with the inspection part added in and with creating some oversight, how do all of these steps tend to impact the cost and quality of a modular build? Uh, are these usually pretty predictable in terms of you know what the end user can expect in terms of time, cost, etc.? Uh, or is there a lot of variability here? You know that's the beauty of modular, and modular is very predictable because of the assembly line um, process. Because you have uh, schedules that can be planned out because it's in a controlled environment. So as far as um, as quality goes, I mean, you're going to get the same quality. Now, there certainly can be some variability. I had mentioned about the perimeter frame versus the outrigger frame, and there are some benefits to, you know, outrigger versus perimeter and vice versa. And it also relates to the foundation on the site. Costs can be more for outrigger because of the, the, re- the required number of peers. You require more peers, but then there's other reasons why you might go with a perimeter frame instead. Uh, also, you can look at, say, the quality of the steel, you know, the thickness of the steel being used for the I-beams and the support structure there. Um, there's obviously minimum requirements, but there's also uh, upgrades that can be uh, required there. As I mentioned, the decking and Advantech is going to be typically a, a bit higher end decking than, say, just standard plywood. Uh, and you can also get, you have to be careful. Some dealers, some manufacturers will use, you know, lesser thickness decking. So you'll get a little bounce in the flooring. So you want to make sure that you understand the, um, the requirement for the thickness in the flooring. And some of that is also dictated by the use, the building use. So we have to make sure that, you know, an assembly building has the correct floor load uh, or meets the correct floor load requirements, whereas an office building uh, might have a lesser requirement. Um, but that doesn't mean you want to be bouncing down the hallway. So just like a home, I mean, if you build a home and you use thinner plywood than, than um, say, they might use in a typical commercial building, you're going to be down, bouncing across your floor. So uh, it's all in the specification, ensuring that you get the quality, but it's also balancing that with cost. Certainly, you can do the best of the best for everything. But it is going to drive up your cost just like it would in a conventional project. One thing that I did not mention as we we're building this support structure going through that process is these things are designed to be dragged down the road behind a truck. And, and you can't say that for a conventional structure. 
So you really have to respect the engineering that goes into just the basic framework of these buildings and how they've been put together in order to be dragged up to a thousand miles or even more to a construction site and then fitted seamlessly and perfectly together with the other uh, modules. And then from there, I know the process starts to uh, basically fill in the gaps of the skeleton, right? So we start to see the wall as well as the roof and the ceiling then get built out before any of the guts of the building are put in. So go ahead and break down that aspect as well, the horizontal fabrication of the walls as well as um, then adding a roof and ceiling. Sure, absolutely. So as you walk down the assembly line or ride down, depending on how long it is, maybe you're in a golf cart, but um, you get to the wall section and you'll see these uh, long tables and they basically lay out all the lumber and piece them together just as you would typically see in a conventional structure. Uh, you're going to get your two by six framing, um, making sure that it has sufficient space for the insulation that will come later in the process. But one of the things about the way that these are set up for the fabrication of the walls is they're, they're set up to be ergonomic so that the workers are working in a safe environment, a familiar environment, and uh, they're not having to do a lot of bending over, a ton of walking around, things like that. They have their materials close by. So there's a lot of safety precautions put in place. And the fact that you're building the wall horizontal uh, and then lifting it in place with a crane kind of takes a lot of the safety risks out of the equation. One of the things that you, you have to think about is these walls, you know, they could be 70 feet long and they're going to lift the entire wall on at the same time. It's it's pretty awesome to watch this happen. But with an assembly line, because it's predictable, they're able to prefabricate the walls ahead of time for a module that maybe the frame hasn't even been built yet. So they have these walls staged and ready to be installed so that it's not, the unit is not rolling down the line and waiting for the wall to be built. The walls are already being built. As soon as the unit rolls to the next station, that's when they begin installing the wall. So it's a very seamless and efficient process to move these modules through. Obviously not every part of the process can move that quickly. There are gonna be you know, more detailed components once you get to electrical and plumbing. But as far as the structural components go, that's where you can really gain some efficiency in the assembly line process. One other thing I want to mention as far as, you know, you mentioned the roof and ceiling as well. So we'll just kind of uh, dovetail right into that. The roof and ceiling is also typically built at a worker height so that you can, you're standing there working at a table, framing it out. And, and sometimes some manufacturers even keep them uh, at a working height when they're putting in the ceiling uh, finishes, the electrical, the insulation and things like that. And then they crane the whole thing onto the, the wall structure. And this really gives the workers a safe environment and it maintains a familiar environment for them. And that's one of the key things with modular is safety because of the fact that it's, in a, it's performed in a controlled facility. Uh, there is a lot of ability to ensure that the workers are safe. Yeah, that safety component is key. I mean, the fact that most workers are all 
basically working on the same level as they build out this, um, you know, this building uh, is different than being on site. Naturally, in a construction site, you've got scaffolding, you know, you often have multiple stories being worked on at a time, cranes adding the, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth floors while the first, second are being, um, you know, finished out, insulation being added, et cetera, et cetera. But with a prefabricated build, with a modular build, uh, that is all happening on the same physical plane, right? Everyone's on the same sort of ground floor, which means there's probably more interaction, more bumping into each other, and more potential for safety issues. So go ahead and break that down for us. How do you see um, different manufacturing houses basically approach that process differently and try to maximize the amount of safety with all workers working on that same field? Well, I think it comes down to probably two components. One is breaking down the departments within the manufacturing assembly line. And then the other one is multiple manufacturing assembly lines. So ensuring that when the walls are being fabricated, they may be fabricated on multiple tables and then stage. It's not like everyone is always fabricated on the single table. The other thing is, is teamwork. So you end up having, I've, I've actually seen this. This is one of, one of the coolest things when I was in one of the manufacturing facilities. They had the trusses, you know, prefabricated in a separate area of the factory. And then they had like 20 people carrying these one at a time, you know, just following in a line, bringing them in, setting them into place, bringing them in, setting them into place. I mean, if you're talking a 70 foot building, there's a lot of uh, trusses that goes into one of those. So it's a lot of coordination and teamwork. But I would say that that probably the, the way that the manufacturers arrange for safety in such a consistent manner is um, the close management because the, the management can be in the, um, in the area where the construction is going on at any point in time, safely observing what is going on. And then also uh, the familiarity of the environment. I mean, when these guys are carrying these trusses, they do this all the time. So it's not like this was a, a new process for them. They're, it's always working in a f familiar environment. If you think about a conventional structure, certainly construction is one of those industries that it, in the past 10, 20 years, has really, really changed um, to focus on safety and that's across the board. But there's still safety risks that exist out there and one of them is a changing environment. So if if you're working in a on a uh, an office building in one area and then you know in six months now you're working in an office building in a totally different geographic area, it's a new environment. With modular it never ends up being a new environment. It's always the same environment providing that consistency. And it also allows for um, certain equipment to be in place all the time that they can always expect to be there to help them, such as catwalks or scissor lifts to give that added safety component. And then there's another layer of safety that comes during this step, and that would be uh, making sure that uh, obviously the walls, 
the roofs and the ceilings are all compliant with industry standards uh, and are made in such a way that are safe for the end users, right? So you both have to be balancing, how is this safe during the build process? But then how will this remain safe once installed on site? Uh, so break down the process for ensuring that level of quality, what kind of inspection, what kind of tests you need to do to uh, make sure everything is kosher. It's interesting in a manufacturing facility versus building on site that when you're building on site, most often it's contractors that are familiar with that geographic area and build in that geographic area all the time. So they typically are building to very similar requirements when it comes to roof loads and wind loads. But in a manufacturing facility for modular, you have to consider that these buildings, you know, for instance, might be built in South Georgia, but being shipped up to Pennsylvania or New York or, you know, into the Midwest or even along the coastlines. And so every single building that comes through there can have a different requirement as far as those wind loads and, and snow loads come into play. And so it's very important on the engineering side and the front end to, you know, make sure that the plans adhere to those. And then there's obviously QC representatives throughout the manufacturing facility that ensure that what is being built is going, it, it is matching what the plans require. And so, you know, you can have a, a building come through with a 130 uh, mile an hour wind load. And then you might have one that's going, you know, into the Midwest or something that might need an 80 or 90 mile an hour wind load. So uh, it's really the assembly line lends itself to ensuring that for each module, that sort of code compliance is in place. And it is challenging because you're sending this stuff across uh, state lines, you know, far away from where they're actually being manufactured. And, and that's a critical component of ensuring that the buildings are built properly. The other component that we have to consider is dealers that buy a lot of the temporary buildings and then lease them are leasing these buildings in many different states. So they might put it out for a three-year lease to a school in Tennessee, and then they might want to, when that building is done off that three-year lease returns, then they put it out to a school in South Carolina. Well, they don't all have the same codes. So these buildings are built to multi to meet multiple state codes as well. So it's a really complicated process. It's not just building a structure to meet one area's codes. So you have to respect the design that goes into them and then the QC also that goes along with putting and building these structures. So I think this tees us up well for the next phase of the construction process, which basically takes this finished skeleton and finished exterior and starts to finalize some of those exterior aesthetic areas, as well as begin to flesh out the guts of the building. So plumbing, electrical, data wiring, all that good stuff. So go ahead and break down for us once we've got the walls, the floors, the roof and ceiling, and the you know sturdy, uh, raw steel structure, where do we go from there, right? What comes next? And like I said in the beginning, you know, some factories, 
actually they all operate a little bit differently, but I'll, I'll run through the way that I have observed these firsthand. And um, the HVAC tends to be the next thing that is installed, the duct work. And many factories uh, fabricate their own duct work. They bring in the, the raw materials and then fabricate them custom uh, at their facility. That creates a quality component that they like. And it also allows for a rapid customization um, within their own facility. The roofing material would be installed at this point. And um, that's one of the components where you do have workers up on the top of the single story structure. And so you're always making sure that those workers are, are working in a safe manner, tied off, and then um, and making sure that the uh, quality of work is is to the level that's expected as well but that can be easily inspected since it's that single story level then we get into the plumbing and electrical and data wiring and uh, exterior windows and doors and uh, exterior finishes comes follows that but you know those components such as plumbing and electrical and data wiring those are custom pretty much from building to building certainly there are codes that have to be met but as far as the fixtures go and, um, you know, <laughs> even with code compliance, you know, from state to state, the requirements are so different that it, it creates a lot of challenges in this area. And this is a really key component of the entire manufacturing process. And then when you get to the exterior doors and windows, you know, there are standards that are pretty much used across the um the industry as far as your temporary buildings goes. But when you get into the more custom stuff, you can get some really high-end uh, windows and doors put in that are that look fantastic and add a whole new a whole different element to the structures when they're completed. The exterior finishes, we can get into that. And that I think is um, one of the more interesting pieces of the manufacturing process because of the variety that's out there. And I think that the industry looks at, especially for temporary buildings, looks at the durability probably first. And so you'll see a lot of buildings coming out of manufacturing facilities with steel uh, on the exterior. It's easy to paint. It's durable. It's easy to replace sections. And there are some aesthetic components to it as well. But there are as many options for exterior finishes in modular as there are for conventional construction as well. I'd assume that for clients of yours, one of the most interesting and exciting parts of the modular process are the potential opportunities for customization, because naturally you're dealing with a modular building, you're dealing with something that uh, from top to bottom is meant to be flexible and customized during that construction process. So it fits all of the uh, built needs. So I'm curious how you see uh, customization fitting into some of uh, the exterior decisions, some of the aesthetic decisions that come from this sort of late stage aspect of the design and uh, manufacturing process. Basically, what are some of those opportunities or maybe even challenges around customization that you see? Sure. So uh, probably one of the biggest challenges that, that comes into play is cost. This is where you can really start to add up cost. And so it's a critical decision by the uh, end user as to 
balancing out the uh, aesthetics of their new structure versus the the expense of that. And there's also those exteriors which are better suited to be installed on site versus uh, being installed into manufacturing facilities. So it also uh, creates an additional logistical component, not a difficult one, but it does create one. Those are some of the considerations. But for clients, there are so many options. And I've seen I'll actually one locally where I'm at in this office, there is a, a building we installed that has a, a stone finish on it. And they had a bunch of stone buildings. Uh, it's a it's an older campus and they wanted to not have a new building standing out there that looked, you know, completely modern or completely different. So uh, our team went out and matched the stone as closely as possible. And that was a on-site installation, but it provides that flexibility for our clients to say, yeah, provide us with our, with your typical uh, exterior finish that's going to be durable and long-lasting and it's cost-efficient and we'll do that for you. Or say, cost is no object. I want it to match our uh, existing structures or I want it to match our environment. We have a really good example of a, a vertical wood siding that was installed in, at a zoo in in Massachusetts. And it looks fabulous. It really blends in well with the uh, surroundings of the, the woods and the, you know, with the animals around and all that. And so you'll have those options as well. And, and, uh, and an additional option that I think is just, it's mind boggling because you can make it look however you want is with a wrap. We've actually done some buildings with wraps. I know that competitors of ours have done some fabulous looking buildings with wraps. And, you know, you can print whatever you want on these wraps and then put it around the building. So you can print bricks, you can print trees, you can print uh, stones. So you get the look from a distance of, say, a higher end finish in a much more affordable wrap. And, and not only that, you know, that sort of a exterior finish is easier to change. You know, if it's an environment where you want to change the way it looks for whatever reason, you know, a wrap could help with that. You know, there are options for brick and, and vinyl uh, siding. As I mentioned, typical, we use um, steel. And then there are um, cement board options. And, you know, there are so many exterior options that you can pick from. And the aesthetics, you know, on the exterior are not just the exterior finish. I mean, there are architectural components that can be added as well. And so depending on, you know, if you want canopies or mansards or those sorts of options, they provide additional customizations that make these buildings attractive to uh, pretty much any client that's looking for an efficient, both in speed and cost-effective process for construction. And Mark, that tees us up into the final stretch here, the home stretch of steps to realize a modular building. And that would be basically finalizing interior aesthetics, exterior aesthetics, and the rest of the guts of the building. So can you break down this final leg of the process? What does it look like? How does it impact cost and quality? 
Yeah. Now this is, you know, the most interesting part of the process to clients because this is when they can really start to see their modules coming together. And while not many clients go to the manufacturing facilities, when they do, this is the part that they tend to be most interested in. It's when the installations, insulations going in, their wall finishes are being applied. And then, you know, the, the interior doors, the trim, all the, all the finishing stuff. So they can begin to visualize the usage of that building. They can visualize the students in that structure. They can visualize their employees working in that building. They can see, you know, the offices, they can see the closets, they can see the restrooms, all that type of stuff. And, um, it's pretty cool to see these coming off the line. I mean, you got like a, a a component of a building. So let's say it's a four piece building. You have one quarter of the building sitting there, but if you climb up into this thing, it looks completely finished. You got your windows, you got your interior walls finished, you got your flooring. And then um, they also have cleaning people that clean everything. So it's immaculate. But then you step out, uh, walk over to the one side and it's completely open because that's where the other modules made up to it. So it's a very exciting part of the process and rewarding um, for the manufacturers to see those coming off. But it's a very important process because this is where the attention to detail really comes into play and where the inspection you know, kind of ramps up on the, um, the pickiness. And because we know that our clients deserve a high quality product and so we want to ensure that those buildings that are rolling off the line uh, meet that quality standard. And while, um, you know, a, a construction contractor in a geographic region building a site built structure can come back for minor punch list items and things like that. When these are rolling off the manufacturing line, we don't want to be sending people 500 miles, a thousand miles to fix something that wasn't done right in the factory. So that's why there's such a high focus, high level focus on quality control as they come off the line. And once they come off the line, they are weather, they are wrapped so that they are completely weather tight because you know the next phase is a little bit of storage time typically because most often the, the permitting process takes longer than almost any client anticipates. So there's challenges there. So the units are often done before you can actually bring them on the site and install them. There are the the off circumstances where maybe the, the foundation or the site excavation utility runs might be taking a little bit longer on the site as well, can run into rock or something of that nature, which can delay things. So it, when they roll off the line, they have to be able to be sitting out in the weather and not have any um, exposure to the weather on the inside. Because remember, these things are up to 90% finished sitting there waiting to be transported. I think this is a good place to wrap up our conversation uh, by just breaking down more clearly that storage until delivery process. Yeah, there's so much to balance here since uh, first, you know, these buildings are being stored in areas where there's a lot of people working. There's a lot of other, um, you know, needs in these facilities, whether that's other buildings being built out or that is, you know, general warehouse and storage facility operations. 
And then on top of that, there's also the delivery component of having to take a modular building and sometimes move it a thousand miles away or more, right? Cross country road trip. So break down some of those dynamics, how those impact cost as well as quality of a modular building and more specifically just aspects of central manufacturing and the distribution chain. The manufacturers are situated typically in areas where there's there's plentiful materials, plentiful plentiful employees, and uh, that allows for an efficient and cost effective process to be performed. And then they they basically work as a distribution facility for those units that they've created and built for modular building dealers who are then delivering them to an end user. So as these modular units come off of each line, they're staged on their manufacturing facility. You'll, you'll walk onto their property and they just have tons of units there awaiting delivery. And all these units or many of the units are with many different modular dealers. These manufacturers build for many different modular dealers. So you, you can walk through the facility and you can see as many modular dealers as you do modules out there. And each of those individual modular dealers is arranging for the delivery of the individual modules. And the delivery trucks, they come in, it's very seamless process. They know where the units are that they need to pick up. They hitch them up and they drag them out and they're on the road, you know, could be 500 miles, could be a thousand miles could be five miles depending on uh, the location. But that transportation process is a really critical component, not only from a timing standpoint, because you need to ensure that they get to the site at the proper time, uh, especially if there's nowhere to stage the buildings, the individual units. Uh, and what I mean by staging is you know, a parking lot where you can just unhook them and let them sit there until it's it's that module's turn to be installed. And then there's also, you know, the safety aspects. You're, you're dragging, you know, a 70 foot long building that's maybe 14 feet wide or 12 feet wide, you know, uh, typically down the highway. And so you have flagger cars required for certain uh, areas. And, and it is really challenging for these delivery companies too, because they have to map out all these routes, ensuring you know that they know heights of bridges and wires and all that sort of thing. And then they have to comply with time of transport. And when they're mapping out the routes, they have to make sure that that their their route complies with the uh, the requirements of each individual state they're going through. They can't just say, I'm going to go up I-95 and, and drive through 10 states uh, at noon. So they're all really important components. And that timing is, is really important to when it arrives at the site. So the delivery is no small thing. And you need the units to arrive in excellent condition just as they left the, uh, the manufacturing facility, maybe just a little dirtier. But once they arrive at the site, then it's it's really fast. This is an amazing part of the entire process. And it's a little bit beyond the manufacturing. But when they install these units, you know, you're you're sitting there and you're seeing the first truck pull up with the module and you see a foundation that's been put in. And within a couple hours, you can walk through the entire building and it feels like um you're you're in a 
normal building. It's, it's a very surreal process and customers love that part. You go from having nothing to having the entire building often in one day. One of the other things about the manufacturing process that we, we want to make just very clear is that not every manufacturer builds the same way. And each person, each owner that orders a building really should clearly understand the process. You want to understand the process. You want to understand the specifications and where you're going to gain that, gain that understanding if you don't inherently already have it is through the modular building dealer, who is basically your representative to the manufacturer. They're arranging for your delivery. They're, they're providing the, the installation services. And it's very important that you partner with the right dealer. So make sure that you feel comfortable that the dealer that you're working with is an expert in the industry, that they're going to provide a quality that you're looking for, and ultimately provide the solution that you need in a cost-effective manner. And Mark, I think on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast with one more question. We're going to look ahead a little bit, peer into the crystal ball, and I'm curious if there are any signs that any of these tried-and-true modular building processes are set to change, right? Do you see any factors or uh, industry needs motivating new builds or new processes in the modular construction industry? Yes, no, why or why not? What are you seeing? You know, the construction industry has always kind of lagged behind uh, other industries as far as technology and advancement goes. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons is it's, it's very challenging to to change and uh, construction is under a lot of regulation and materials, uh, I mean, are fairly limited. So you have to, you know, select from materials that are in use until new ones are maybe developed or, or conceptualized. But I think that the area where you are going to see the biggest change in say the next five to 10 years is I think in the technology side of how the manufacturing process is done, increasing the efficiency, even maybe increasing the the quality control further. But you still have the craftsmanship component. Uh, So I don't think that you're going to be taking the individual worker out of it completely. This is not like an automobile assembly line where it can just be robots down the entire assembly line. There's still a human component that's required to ensure that certain customizations are done. And I think that human hands are needed in certain areas. But I do think that there's a lot of areas where manufacturers have already changed the processes in like prefabricating things off of the assembly line so that the main assembly line runs more efficient. But I think that you can go beyond that. And I think that there can be, you know, 3D or BIM technology brought in. There's also, you know, changing materials. You're you're seeing changing like plumbing materials. You know, you used to use copper a long time ago. Now, you know, copper in many areas is is not required. And so you have to think through each of those components and how they can be modernized, how they can be advanced for greater cost effectiveness and efficiency. And I think that technology is going to bring those answers. And I think that those manufacturers that are looking to advance will be extremely successful. But one of the challenges is that 
they they take a major investment as anything does in you know to institute technology like this and when you're bringing it into an environment where it hasn't really been proven yet there's a substantial risk there so i don't i don't anticipate this being like an overnight change i think it's going to be a gradual change as there's a continued push for growth and efficiency and cost effectiveness Mark Myers, thank you so much for your time on Built Modular today. Again, we've been chatting with Mark Myers, General Manager of Marketing Services at Vanguard, discussing top to bottom what it takes to take a modular building and actually make it reality, breaking down some of the ways individual processes impact cost, quality, and efficacy of a modular building. So Mark Myers, thank you again for your time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate your time as well. And if folks want to find out a little bit more about Vanguard Modular's place in this industry, how you maneuver uh, some of these processes, or maybe they just want to get in touch, how can they do so? Well, if you'd like to ask some questions or learn some more directly from a live human being, you can call 877-438-8627 and you'll be routed to a local representative in your area. Or that we have a ton of information and resources on VanguardModular.com. Perfect. Mark, thanks again. We'll chat soon. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Built Modular brought to you by Vanguard Modular, a box modular company. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you are subscribing to Built Modular on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as heading to our website, vanguardmodular.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.